Welcome to the public morality. Recently, Whoopi Goldberg set off a brief tempest for the 24-hour news cycle with the following quote. The Holocaust isn't about race. She later said, it's not about race. It's about man's inhumanity to man. Many, particularly in the Jewish community, took issue publicly with Goldberg's comments suggesting the Holocaust was not about race. Goldberg subsequently apologized for her remarks and ABC levied her with a two-week suspension from her show, The View. But Goldberg's comments raised larger implications. What does it mean to be a Jew? Are Jews a race, an ethnicity, a religion, a nation, a people, a culture? I suspect many would offer there are some portion of all of the above. To grapple with these and other questions, we're honored to have on the public morality Professor Susanna Heschel. Professor Heschel is the Eli M. Black Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth College. She is also the daughter of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Professor Susanna Heschel, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. Good to be with you. The controversy surrounding Whoopi Goldberg's comments last week about the Holocaust uh, raised questions for me. And one of the, the primary questions it raised is, when we say Jew, what do we mean? Is it religious? Is it ethnic? Is it race? Or are there other distinctive qualifiers? How, how do you see that? You know, the question that you ask is a question that has been posed really since the uh, second half of the 18th century in Europe, when the question started whether Jews could receive citizenship. Citizenship was a new concept in the modern state. But should Jews be citizens? Uh, and it had also was a question asked, for example, in Catholic France about Protestants. And the question then, why do we ask, the, why do we ask that question? Well, the issue was this. Are Jews a religion or are Jews a nation? If they're a nation, then how can they belong to the French nation? And if they are a religion, then why do Jews in the Hebrew Bible and in the prayer book long for a return to Zion with the coming of the Messiah? Why do Jews speak about their own salvation, that God will come and send a Messiah, which of course is the heart of Christian belief as well, but Christians usually think of themselves as, in a sense, the norm, and everybody else is different. And yet we're all really the same. It's just that there are more Christians than there are Jews, so Christians don't necessarily think about the ways in which Christianity is itself an ethnic group, so to speak. But the word ethnic or nation or even religion really doesn't help us understand the condition of Jews or of a lot of other people for that matter. That is, you can't really say Jews are just a religion or the Jews are just a nation. Many Jews responded in the modern period by saying, we are not a nation, we are just a religion. And they even gave up the word Jew and Judaism. And they said, we are, for example, Germans of the Mosaic persuasion, Mosaic meaning Moses from the Bible. So they tried to redefine themselves, but the issue, and I, for this I would turn to the great feminist philosopher Mary Daly, the issue is what Mary Daly called methodolatry, that is the idolatry of methods or of terminology. Why are we stuck with the question, are Jews an, an ethnic group, are Jews a nation, or are Jews a religion, are Jews a race? 
because the terms don't work. They don't help us. They don't explain. We get so caught up that we, with the terms themselves, that we don't realize that they're not helping us. That's the problem. We have to stop using that kind of terminology. And I, I would suspect, just you know, you say it's a question that that others were that was being raised in in uh, late nineteenth uh, century Europe, but it, it's also an internal debate. Is that correct? Well, it became an internal debate because Jews really wanted citizenship and they wanted to be accepted and and have all the rights that everybody else has. And Jewish citizenship didn't really feel let's say very strong or, or guaranteed. And I would say that's very similar to the situation in this country to this day for African-Americans. If you are denied the right to vote or if people are trying, the government are trying to restrict your right to vote, are you really then a citizen? And I think we should worry about that. What does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? Given the, given the way Congress is going, the way the Republican Party is going, I wonder if they might, a few years from now, start questioning whether everybody is in fact a citizen. And they would start, I think, with black Americans, brown Americans, Asian Americans, and ultimately they'll come to Jews as well. We may be at the bottom of the list right now, but even the bottom gets reached. Well, but, but your point is well taken because there's already been some, uh, in, in some of the recent um voting legislation is there's already been some calls for citizenship sort of tests in in in, in the voting legislation so your point your, your point is well taken you know yes. when i um having spent some time in, in in israel um i saw jews come in many forms shapes sizes colors so that in a contemporary context it seems difficult to claim a singular race if we're talking about a commonality of physical traits that would make Jews distinctive. How do you see that, Professor? Well, if we look at the United States, the 1790 Naturalization Act reserved citizenship for white people. And then came the question, what is it to be a white person? It was only with the 14th Amendment in 1868 that African-Americans were given citizenship. Native Americans have individual treaties until finally 1924, there was an Indian Citizenship Act. And then we had to wait until 1954, not that long ago, for the McCarran-Walter Act for Asian immigrants to have citizenship because that act removed racial barriers to naturalization. But the question was about whiteness. Now, whiteness was in fact a legal possession. It was a legal status. It wasn't a matter of your skin color. And the definition wasn't straightforward. So for example, if you had very white skin and you were a Muslim from the Middle East, you were not always recognized as white. But if you had white skin and came from the Middle East and you were a Christian or a Jew, then you were white. So whiteness is quite variable and it is not to do with skin color. It's inflected by your religion, your geographic place of origin and as we heard in Charlottesville in August of 2017 at that white supremacist march, people were chanting, the Jews will not replace us, making it clear that whiteness does not apply to Jews. White people are Christian and of European origin. And 
people who are black-skinned, people who are Asian, people who are Muslim, people who are Jewish are not white, regardless of skin color. So that's how we have to understand that race is not just about your body. And I, I studied this when I wrote a book about Nazi Germany. The Nazis weren't so concerned in their racism about the body itself. It wasn't that my my nose or my hair or my skin color was dangerous. It's rather, what does it mean, whiteness or blackness or Jewishness? What, they're, what racists talk about is the moral and spiritual degeneracy of Jews or Asians or Muslims and so on that will infect the whole society and be dangerous and be destructive. We have a lot of conspiracy theories, as we know, that Jews are, are actually working in a conspiratorial fashion to destroy white people in this country, to destroy their power, for example, to take over. You know, people, once I was in Botswana in the Okafanga Delta in the middle of nowhere, and I ran into a man who started talking to me, he was from Germany, and he started telling me, well, you know, the Jews have too much power in Congress. You know, I thought about, what do you mean too much power? And Christians don't? And if white Protestants control Congress, then it's okay? What does too much mean? So <laughs> I think we need to worry about conspiratorial thinking. And perhaps we should go back to a wonderful article that was published back in 1964 by the historian Richard Hofstadter, where he talked about a paranoid style in American politics. It was a really interesting article that has a lot to tell us to this day. He talked about how this, this paranoid style was this fear that people are conspiring somehow. So white Protestant Americans were upset because they felt that, oh, Jews, Catholics, Jesuits, Freemasons, Mormons, even the, the kings of, of Europe, they were conspiring against white people. And you find that kind of paranoid style to this day in lots of different groups. Certainly, you know, Joseph McCarthy and the anti-communist Red Scare, that was paranoid thinking. And the white supremacists today, all of these neo-Nazi groups, paranoid style. People who were <laughs> refusing to get vaccinated against a terrible disease that might kill them. What's the paranoia about the vaccination? Crazy. You won't well, get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. No, I'm glad. I'm glad. I want to. I want to. I want to um, come back to you because you touched on the Nazis. I want to come back to that because you know any conversation, like any conversation in our public discourse today, uh, when someone outside of the Jewish community makes a critique, I think we have to be honest that. The Holocaust and, and the depravity of Nazi Germany hovers over that conversation, whether you mention it or not. Would that be accurate, ma'am? Yes, because it was a trauma, and trauma lasts for generations. And we know that people who were enslaved, black people enslaved in this country, yeah, the enslavement ended, quote unquote. But it also continued in Jim Crow, in mass incarceration. It's trauma that lasts for generations, of course. And, and, and clearly, 
um, um, you've alluded to this already, but clearly Nazis defined Jews in racial terms that you articulated earlier, but they were they were uh, uh, definite about uh, making it an inferior race. So to, in order to justify annihilation, I'm thinking some of the writings of, uh, you know, Alfred Rosenberg in the 30s and before that, obviously, Hitler and Mein Kampf. So, so I think isn't part of our tension now, and I'm thinking about Whoopi Goldberg's comments, she's sort of looking at it through, she made comments through an American lens, but through a Nazi lens, it was very much about race to justify ends they already they predetermined. Yes. First of all, I, I'm disgusted by the anger at Whoopi Goldberg's comments. Uh, I think it's crazy for people to get upset about it. What did she say? She spoke about the Holocaust as man's inhumanity to man. I would say human being, not just men. Women also were involved, but okay. Man's inhumanity to man is a phrase that's been used by Holocaust survivors over the years, over the decades, by Primo Levi, by Elie Wiesel, by my own father. I was it, gonna say, I can see your father saying that. <laughs> of course, my father was a rabbi and a Jewish theologian and his mother and three of his sisters were killed, his whole extended family and it's trauma. And yes, how can a human being do such a thing to another person? You know, how could it be? I, I'm, I'm thinking now of the great book by the, the great historian actually from North Carolina, from UNC, Christopher Browning and his book, Ordinary Men, has one instance of a German who took his pistol to kill a mother and child. And after the war, he tried to justify it. And he said, well, I killed the mother first. And then I looked at the child and I thought, this child can't survive without a mother, so I might as well kill the child. That's, I, I, it's hard for us, and this, I want to say that this is not limited, obviously, to the Holocaust. I think about George Floyd and the man who murdered him. I think about cases like this going on to this day, torture around the world. How can human beings be so cruel to other human beings. It's, yes, we call it inhumanity. At a certain point, I think that is who we are. We are horrible to one another. And the level of cruelty is overwhelming. Now, that's what she was talking about, and I understand that. And in terms of race, yeah, she said white people doing it to white people. Yeah, exactly, which is what makes no sense. There was no sense of of some kind of bond. So for example, even a German Jew who converted to Christianity, who had lived in Germany forever. I mean, we are talking going back to the third century. How could a German kill another German? How could a Christian kill another Christian? How can it be, as I found recently, and I just published an article about this, that a Christian minister actually investigated to see if any of the people in the church had Jewish blood in them and then turned their names over to the Gestapo to be killed. They were baptized. And, and if you're a Christian, baptism makes you a Christian. It's a sacrament of God. So 
Uh, yes, from from what Whoopi Goldberg said, she's right. White people killed white people. Christians killed Christians. It makes no sense. It's horrific. Now, of course, the point is that it was racialized. That is, even if you were baptized, you were still a Jew. Even to ministers, Christian ministers, who are supposed to believe that baptism makes you a Christian. But the Nazis said no. Even if you're baptized, you're still a Jew, and Jews are inferior and horrible and have to be killed. All Jews the Nazis wanted to kill, all Jews in the entire universe, not just in Germany or in Europe. And that's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. So, okay, so Whoopi Goldberg didn't express it exactly correctly, and maybe if she read Browning's book or one of the other books, she would formulate it differently. Okay, fine. I don't think what she said was so horrific, frankly. And I don't understand why people get so upset, except that this is an era in which we're all getting paranoid and hysterical. Well, you know, one of the things that, that, that occurred to me, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it, that, that I thought sort of complicated her remarks, in addition to the hysteria that, that um, you, you, you offer, is that on one side of this ledger, you, you have uh, Nazi Germany proclaiming Jews are not only a race, but an inferior one that warrants annihilation. But then on the other side of the ledger, you have the United States with its complicated color-coded culture that delineates by skin type. So in your view, how, how did Jews uh, negotiate between those two from being a, a race from the express purpose of justifying evil on one side and then another that says if you're white depending on who says it, if you're a certain kind of white you're okay seems that's a lot of negotiation to go through it is a lot of negotiation and i think uh you know trauma lasts a long time and it's pretty widespread and i would just say if i were uh, 15 years old and I were a black man in this country, I would be pretty traumatized by what I see going on around me. The murder of black men by police and women and children. So uh, I think for Jews, yeah, the, what happened in Nazi Germany is also traumatizing and it also makes Jews stop for a minute and say, well, what does it mean to be a Jew in this world? Uh, am I a race? And if I'm a race, then, you know, I'm, I'm liable to be murdered by someone who says my race is a bad race. Uh, is being Jewish a religion? What kind of protection do I have in this world? Where's the safety? Uh, I think it's obviously in certain circumstances easier to be a white Jew, yes. Uh, but there are also 15% of Jews in America are Jews of color. Asian, black, brown, Latino. In Israel, the vast majority of Jews are Jews of color uh, who come from North Africa, uh, from East Africa, from the Middle East. Uh, so let's, let's also think in those terms. Um, Jews are of all kinds of, comes in all kinds, Jews come in all kinds of colors and shapes uh, and genders. And it is complicated, yes. And it is sometimes nerve-wracking. And sometimes I think Jews throw up their hands and say, I I'm just sick of this whole thing. I'm sick of dealing with all this. Uh, 
sometimes I feel that way as a woman facing sexism. <laughs> Just staying, I mean, not, not, not to belabor Whoopi Gilbert's comments, but staying with it for a moment because you, you, you took her whole comment in, in the full context, um, which includes man's inhumanity to man. Um, are we just a culture that are titillated by sound bites? So we just heard the first part, and whatever you say about the first part, man's inhumanity to man portion of Whoopi Goldberg's statement is just never get heard. Are we just unable to hold both those things simultaneously from your perspective? Yes, I think we are, as you say, a culture of sound bites, and that's very bad. We need to be a culture of calm reflection, consideration, thoughtfulness, analysis. Take a deep breath before getting worked up. I think we lack generosity, generosity of spirit toward other human beings in this culture. We also lack compassion. And I'll tell you that my father used to say, if there's one word that represents Judaism, it's compassion and we lack compassion. And that's deeply disturbing. Well, in you, you had mentioned earlier just about trauma and how these things last for generations. So, I mean, could it be that some heard Whoopi Girl Goldberg's, the first portion of her comment, and some of the backlash is the result of, you know, the last time we let benign statements go by, it resulted in a much larger form of evil, primarily the Holocaust. Is, is, is that sort of lurking in your view and in, in some people's minds of why we had some of the backlash to Whoopi Goldberg? That's a good point. And I agree with you because all of us, all human beings respond in the present with a sense of the history of the past. So yes, there's this feeling that in, in Germany or in Europe more widely, People made comments about Jews and Jews sort of overlooked, looked the other way, didn't make a fuss. And even in this country, there was a, there's a phrase called shah still. The Jews say, don't get worked up, be quiet. Someone says something that's horrible, just let it go and hope that it'll be forgotten. And at the same time, it's not only the past because we're seeing a tremendous upsurge in this country of anti-Semitism, of a revival of kind of admiration for the Nazis. We see swastikas being painted around the country in schools and public buildings, shootings, and it's all part of a larger bundle of racism toward all kinds of people. The idea that there would be violence toward Asian people in this country, why? Because of COVID makes no sense. The violence against black people is horrifying. And, you know, we used to, in the United States, there used to be postcards of lynchings that were sent around. And now we have video cameras, but it hasn't stopped it. One would think that there would be one lynching witness and it would never happen again because people would be horrified, but that didn't happen. And it's similar with the Holocaust. Nazis took photographs and there are archives with millions of these images. The photographs were sent home. 
home to parents, to friends, to teachers, even to priests and ministers. Look what we're doing, we're killing the Jews. And those photographs get reproduced so that when we look at a film that shows the murder of Jews by the Nazis, we're looking through the lens of a Nazi camera. And that's disturbing too. We shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be looking from that perspective. It's similar with these postcards of lynching, lynching photographs. We're looking at that photograph through the eyes of the white people who were bystanders or participants in the torture and murder of black people. Now, what do we do with pictures like that? What should we do? What should we do? In, mm -hmm. So I want you to talk about, if you could, what happens when someone else's trauma, Jews, World War II, you know, Blacks in this time period, when someone else's trauma becomes normalized in the culture, in the larger culture? Well, I, I'm, I don't think, yes, I understand, which it becomes, I don't know, normalized and widespread and- When I'm normalized, like I get a picture of, of a lynching of a black man, if I'm a white person, get, you know, and I get pictures of this, then it's not abhorrent to me. It's just, it's part of the yeah. culture. Or if I get something of Jews being abused, it's normal to me. It's part of the culture. So, it, so that's the normalization that I'm referring to. Yes. And uh, the, the question is, what does it do to us, to our mentality, to our yes. politics, to our culture, to our souls? How has it affected my soul? I, uh, I think that's something we need to worry about very much, the trauma and the long-lasting impact of it. You know, I think what happened on September 11th, the attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon in Pennsylvania, what did that do to the United States? In what way did we begin to unravel? Uh, and, I, and I don't think it began on that, at that moment, but how does it affect us? And what should we do? And I think that's the place actually where religion comes in, and I say this as a professor of religion, religion is with us because people are desperate to understand, to deal with the trauma they experience. And religion is supposed to give us a voice to articulate, to experience, but also perhaps to wish for something else. You know, there's a prayer in the Jewish prayer book that speaks of God resurrecting the dead. And in the 19th century, liberals said, this is irrational. We know that the dead will never come back to life. And you know, it's at the heart of Christianity as well, that Jesus was resurrected and that he also brought back to life Lazarus, for example. So the, the, it, so the many of these liberal Jews removed the phrase from the prayer book. But on the other hand, when you've gone through a terrible trauma, when someone you love has been lost, or when there's been mass murder or cruelty, what do you long for? You long for God. You long for the person to come back, for God to bring this person back. So religion gives us also a chance to express wishes, wishes and longings that we can't talk about with other people because they'll make fun of us and say, that's irrational. You need a psychiatrist. No, it's a chance to speak of, of hopes, of longings. And I think we are missing that 
in this country. And that would be an important way of coping with the trauma that we are experiencing. And we are experiencing in the present tense. Uh, I think behind Whoopi Goldberg's remarks might also be a wish on her part, a wish to say, well, white people did this to white people, the Holocaust, a mass murder, a genocide of six million, as if to say, I hope it doesn't happen to me as a black person. I wish, I wish it could be confined somehow, but it can't. And her other phrase, man's inhumanity to man, is also her expression of a realization that it can't be confined, that it isn't just one race that gets targeted, that this kind of murder can happen to anyone and by anyone. And that's what we need to face. So I think what she expressed was actually two sides, a, a wish that it could be confined and a, and a horrible recognition that it can't, it can't be confined, that we're all in danger. And I respect her for giving voice to what I think is a, a feeling that everybody has. Let, let this go away. Let this just be something that, that those people over there do. And at the same time, realizing it can happen to us too, right here and now. Well, well speaking of, uh, on that note about it can happen here, I, I, I think that um, we also can't ignore, uh, which may also sort of tie back into my comments earlier about not letting the benign grow. I mean, there's clearly been a, a rise, I think since 2016, of hate crimes specifically against the Jewish community. That is definitely by FBI reports. That's yes, but I think we also have to recognize that crimes against Jews happen at the same time as crimes against black people, Latinos, Asians. One feeds off the other. If you can do this to that person, you can do it to the other person. So we can't look at these things in isolation. When Eric Garner was murdered, I felt it too. It was a danger to everybody. And you know, let's remember what happened in Pittsburgh. The man who went into the synagogue in Pittsburgh with a gun and killed 11 people said he did it because Jews were helping Muslims and he hated Muslims. Now that's just a clear, indication we're all in this together we're all in this together and you know the only way we can conquer this is through alliances and helping one another in some sense i think jews have been complacent in this country for a variety of reasons and a feeling that okay there's racism but it's toward black people not toward jews jews are white well not really white and not really uh, immune to racism, but okay, we're now getting a taste of this. And I have to say, when Deborah Lipstadt wrote in her article that synagogues are scary places with a lot of heavy security, whereas churches have their doors wide open, I thought, you know, you're talking about white churches. What about all the black churches that have been set on fire? What happened in Charleston, South Carolina, when that horrible white man walked in, was welcomed just like the rabbi in Colleyville welcomed a man into the synagogue and gave him a cup of tea, and then the guy brings out a gun. And in Charleston, a Mother Emanuel church, 
Isati was invited to join Bible study and then he killed, took out a gun and killed as many people as he could. Now, Pittsburgh was, one might say, a moment when Jews could have a taste, a small taste, a small, small taste of what it's like to be black in America. Now, you might say, and as a student said to me, a black gay student said to me, you'll never know what it's like to be me. And I won't. But I can be your ally. And I can have a taste of it. And I can try to help. And I think we are all in this together. And this is not about one situation, one kind of racism being worse than another. That kind of hierarchy is the leads the road to disaster. It's not about that. It's about we're all in this together. And we've got to form alliances and we've got to develop greater generosity and compassion. You, you mentioned earlier, um, here in America, there are, there are a number of Jews that don't necessarily identify as white. And that sentiment is also shared by a number of neo-Nazis and other hate groups. That said, you know, going back to America's, what, I, what I'm calling America's color-coded culture, um, it's easier to be an Ashkenazi Jew, white-skinned, than it probably is to be a Sephardic Jew who's typically, who typically possesses a darker hue. And I wonder how you saw that. Well, sure. And uh, in fact, the problem is to be a dark-skinned Jew, let's say, or an Asian Jew in America, in white America, that's one thing. But even within the Jewish community, I remember a very distinguished older gentleman in uh, Cleveland told me that his wife, who was a Jew from Cuba, uh, and had very much uh, Latino features and so on, that she would be stopped at the synagogue door. What are you doing here? She wasn't recognized as a Jew. Now, the one thing about Israel is that in Israel, there's Jews of every color and shape, etc. So um, there are blonde-haired Jews from Russia and dark-skinned, swarthy Jews from Morocco and black-skinned Jews from Ethiopia and so on. So people are more used to that. Uh, luckily, and I, that is going to have to change here as well. But sure, there's racism in the Jewish community toward other Jews as well as toward other other non-Jews. In, in your comments earlier, one of the things that's always fascinated me is that let's say um, let's say I'm you're you're an observant Jew, and I and I just sort of go by the nondescript term. I just consider myself just Jewish. Uh, but yet, there's a commonality where we both could be Jews. And I find that fascinating because I can't think of any other situation, any other culture where that would be true. And that, that seems to be one of the fascinating things about, about you can be an observant Jew, a non-observant Jew. You can be this, you can be that. You can still come coalesce around this ethnicity known as Jewish. And how do you see that? Well, yeah, that is a kind of remarkable thing, although unfortunately there are still limitations because Jews who are very religious, for example, uh, look down on Jews who are not religious. Um, and so how do we overcome that? I certainly feel a Jew is a Jew, especially after the Nazi period. If you're willing to be a Jew, my goodness, I think that's courageous just in and of itself. And I also would add to that, that there are many different ways over the centuries for Jews 
to express their Jewishness many ways. Some are religious, some are not religious, some were Zionists, uh, for example. And religious Jews, a lot of rabbis were opposed to Zionism because they saw it as a political, a political movement and not a religious movement. Okay, so uh, the, the real issue is that there are many ways to express one's Jewishness. And I'll just add to that, my father wrote in his one of his books, his book called Man is Not Alone. He describes in there that, you know, in, in among very religious Jews, and, and it was one in particular, a rabbi of the 19th century, the Kotzker, who said, your Judaism has to be authentic to who you are. In other words, you have to know who you are you have to understand yourself and go deeply into yourself and then express yourself in Jewish terms. But your expression is going to be unique. The way you pray, the way you understand Torah, the Bible, the way you practice your Judaism. And my father says, you know, if you practice Judaism, just imitating someone else, that would be spiritual plagiarism. And I think that's a marvelous phrase. And I think it's very true. Not everyone, my father said, not every Jew can be orthodox. It just can't. We're too different. And so some Jews are going to not be religious, let's say. But this, it's okay. We accept that. And we also have to say it's the non-religious, secular, political Jews who created Zionism and who also went to the South uh, in Freedom Summer and as Freedom Riders and were involved in the Civil Rights Movement, a lot of those young people were not at all religious. And with them were a lot of rabbis marching at Selma, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist. So we can also share commitments, very important commitments and actions and putting our lives on the line, whether we're religious, not religious, in what way. As long as we're authentic, authentic to who we are, and not just imitating other people's Judaism, that's what's important. And that's something that I really appreciate about my father. I'm in conversation with uh, Professor Susanna Heschel, and we're talking about sort of the, the larger context of what, what it means to be a Jew. And since you mentioned your father, that's a perfect segue for my next uh, question. It seems, uh, Professor Heschel, that the, the conversation we're having right now, and I'm, I'm enjoying it immensely, but it seems so far removed from the, say, the type of conversations your father, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and the Reverend Martin Luther King were having. Um, I guess one of the missing elements from the Whoopi Goldberg kerfuffle was that it was debated on these really binary terrain, which made me think about your father and Dr. King. Are, are we at a place now where there's just no space for that nuanced type of prophetic voice that they offered back in the 60s? We are ripe for that prophetic voice. And that's a voice, by the way, that we have heard in America among Jews and among Christians, and most of all, within the black church. The prophetic voice that's been so important in the civil rights movement and in the anti-slavery movement so often in America, it's not a voice that one hears in Europe, for example. European Christians 
were never particularly interested in the prophets. German Jews, modern Jewish thinkers, were interested in the prophetic tradition and said that is what Judaism is all about. The prophets, teachings of justice. So, of course, we're ripe for that. I think we, we receive the leaders we deserve. Uh, I think Dr. King and my father and their friendship and their teachings were extraordinary in their day. And they're extraordinary in this day as well. We have something to learn still, to read, to study, to think about. They've left us a legacy. The question is, are we willing to pay attention to that legacy, to listen to it without defensiveness and anger? Uh, I think we're so angry right now. How can you, you know, there's a Jewish teaching, you can't pray when you're angry. And in fact, it's forbidden to go to, to sleep at night if you're angry at someone. You have to first reconcile. Then you can pray. Then you can go to bed. And right now, this country is, is so full of anger. It's not clear to me that we're capable right now of studying Dr. King and my father and what they have to teach us. So what can we do to overcome the anger? That's the question. And yet, the, the immorality around segregation from, for, from, from most of America, not all, but most of America, was pretty straightforward. The current climate, these are my words, I would define as arrogant certainty, hence the first part of the Whoopi Goldberg phrase, and ignore um, the second part of man's inhumane man, because the first part works for my arrogant certainty. And so there is no space for that nuance. And can we, can we reclaim that? Because to me, that was one of the great gifts of Dr. King and your father is being able to have that prophetic voice and also that nuanced prophetic voice. Yes. Um, it was a nuanced prophetic voice for sure. Uh, and I, I, I actually, my impression, you know, I, I, can't, I can't judge a person just based on my last conversation. I have to look at the history of my relationship with that person. And I have to understand that person in his or her own context or their own context. Whoopi Goldberg has been a very sensitive and very sympathetic figure for me and for a lot of people. Uh, she's certainly been a friend of the Jews, someone sympathetic. I don't think there was any intention of hostility or, or hurtfulness, uh, I would find that really, I, I, I couldn't possibly believe that given what I know about her. Uh, so let me perhaps, in response to your question, mention a commentary on the book of Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. It's a famous verse where God says to Moses, Come to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. In Hebrew, it's boel paro ki hechbadati et libo. Now, the fact, the idea that Pharaoh was hard-hearted is something that everybody assumes, everybody says that. But there's a commentary a very, from a very pious rabbi, Levi Yitzhak of Radichev, from the end of the 18th century, 
in which he discusses that verse and he says something very different that I think is, well, it's for me, it's helpful. He says the word hardened in Hebrew is the root for the same word as honor, dignity, glory, or heavy, or hard. So the word has many different meanings. And so he reads the verses, come to Pharaoh, for I have made his heart capable of dignity. Now, why does he interpret it that way? Because a few verses later, Pharaoh says, I have sinned. We tend to ignore that verse. Well, what does it mean for Pharaoh to say, I have sinned? And the commentary by Levi Yitzhak asks the question, what does it take to admit that you've sinned, that you've made a mistake, that you've done wrong? If you have a hard heart, if you're angry, if your heart is stone cold, you're not capable of saying, I repent, I've sinned, I repent. It takes a person's inner dignity, a sense of dignity, to be able to say, yeah, I, I, that was wrong of me, I'm sorry. To apologize, to ask forgiveness, to reconcile. And so when I read that commentary, I thought about all the people in this country who've been either going to Trump rallies or going to neo-Nazi marches or been spewing ugly rhetoric, racist rhetoric, anti-Semitic rhetoric, mocking disabled people, for example, they have, they've destroyed their own dignity. When you mock another human being, when you scream something racist, you know, you destroy your own dignity. And so what we need to do is to figure out a way to restore our dignity if we're going to be able to repent for the racism, for the anti-Semitism that we've been spewing for these last years and much longer than a few years, by the way. So I think what Dr. King did was so extraordinary in part because he spoke himself with great dignity, but he also insisted that even the most horrible white sheriffs, Bull Connors, for example, he did not mock them, he didn't scream at them, he didn't call them names, because he wanted them to have a sense for themselves of their own dignity that would lead them to stop behaving that way. And so that's one of the legacies that for me is very important right now in this country. Uh, we need to put an end to the anger, to the lack of generosity and compassion. And that includes in our response to Whoopi Goldberg. We responded with our own anger and rage, and that's not right. She's a person, maybe she made a mistake, but the way to achieve alliance is by showing respect and compassion. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, no, I want to, I want to, I want to end um, finally. I'm going to talk about, I want to end up about your father. I, um, the specifics of the conversation about Whoopi Goldberg is probably not one he could conceive of, but in a macro context, um, you you think about this situation and, and, and others, some of the things we talked about in, in our in our current culture. 
What are some of his thoughts, teachings that might help us not only negotiate the present moment, but, but to go forward? Teachings from my father? Yes. Well, uh, I, I think much of what I've said today actually comes from my father in the way that he gave me a certain legacy, a way of thinking uh, and a way of speaking. Uh, I would say that um, my father always sought to establish some kind of commonality with people uh, and not to respond in, in, in like terms. So for example, if somebody was nasty or angry, he, my father didn't get angry in response. He tried to find some way of being either pleasant, cheerful, tell a story, something that would change the larger dynamic in the relationship. That was what was important to him. Uh, he felt and that, you know, one has to look into a person and find the good in that person because this is an old Hasidic teaching. You see in other people what you have in yourself. And that also, I think, goes to the heart of the question of dignity. But if you see in other people only mean-spiritedness, that's because that's what you are. But if you can look beyond that in the other person and see their goodness, and my father used to say, you know, sometimes he had a student who was nasty, and he said, but this student has a mother, and the mother loves her child. And so I have to think about that mother's love for the child. And instead of getting offended or angry at some unpleasant thing that the student has said to me, let me think about his mother. <laughs> it's a very sweet comment that he made that I appreciate. And as a teacher, I appreciate it too, because I also have to deal with students who are sometimes uh, impolite, let's say. Uh, but I think this society, as you have pointed out, is in dire need of healing. And I hope that we can begin that work very quickly, very soon. And for that, I think our religious leaders are at the forefront, most needed, more than anyone else. And I hope they can, can lead us forward, and I hope that we're able to follow them. Professor Susanna Heschel. Dartmouth College, I want to thank you so much for honoring us by being on the public morality today. We've enjoyed your conversation immensely. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being in touch. All the best to you and to your listeners. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook, as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Paul McRally, I'm Byron Williams.